This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 22nd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Advocates for broad educational freedom cheered the Supreme Court's Carson v. Macon decision. So what's next for the movement toward decentralizing control of educational decisions away from publicly administered systems in favor of the preferences of individual parents and families? Cato's Neil McCluskey comments. Carson v. Macon was a big case for uh, fans of educational freedom, especially in uh, K-12. And to remind listeners, what was that case about and how did that change the field of battle in educational freedom? So Carson v. Macon was about, in a way, a very specific program. The state of Maine, along with Vermont and then much more recently New Hampshire, uh, has something called town tuitioning, which is a program in which if you live in a town that basically doesn't have enough people to efficiently support a public school system, sometimes it means you don't have enough for high school, but it could be uh, middle school, it could be elementary school, but that the people who live in that town can take the money to educate their kids to any other school, or at least in theory, any other school. Um, That meant they could pay for another school district, but they can also pay for private schools. And what Maine said was up till actually 1980, you could take that money uh, to a religious private school. Um, And what Maine said is, well, okay, you can take the money to a school that identifies as religious, in other words, has religious status, but you can't take the money to a religious school that acts on its religion called religious use. And this was sort of an anomaly. We'd had a long growth and precedent of saying in school choice programs, you can choose religious schools as long as that's a free choice. In other words, the government isn't saying you can only choose religion. That's fine. And so this was a case of sort of a parsing of terms um, that seems sort of like a, a small thing, but potentially any state could say, well, you just, you can go to a religious school. We won't discriminate. They just can't act on religion. What the court said is, no, that's still religious discrimination. If you say you can go to any school other than one that acts on its religion, that's really no different than saying you can go to any school other than a religious school. And so they struck down that pretty clear discrimination against religious schools. All right. So the field of play, how does that change now? Well, so that, for the most part, strikes down rules that states set up that explicitly exclude religious schools from selection. There's a lot, though, that we're going to look at going forward about how states deal with that. And there is one kind of dangling precedent that seems inconsistent with the long precedent we've seen since really 2002 with Zelman v. Simmons-Harris, where the Supreme Court said, look, it doesn't violate the federal constitution if you take money to a religious school, as long as that's freely chosen. In other words, you choose a religious school, people could choose non-religious school. It's up to those individuals. But there's a, a case called Locke v. Davey, which was about somebody in uh, Washington state who wanted to use r- publicly readily available benefit, a scholarship or or grant to go to, in this case, higher education. And the state of Washington said, well, 
you can use it for anything except what you want to use it for, which is to train to become a minister on the theory that, look, if you are using this government money to become a minister, that is an entanglement with religion. That is in some way the state establishing religion. Uh, that really doesn't make sense for the same reason that the precedent of Zellman v. Simmons, Harris, all the way to Carson v. Macon says, as long as you're freely choosing it, the state isn't making that decision. Individuals are. That precedent should go because there's no reason the state should say you are welcome to use this grant to become an accountant or to become a lawyer, or become a doctor or to become an engineer. You can use it for anything other than becoming a minister. That's discrimination against religion. As opposed to saying, well, you can use this for anything you want, but if you use it to become a minister, that's establishing religion. That's just wrong. The, the basic principle is the individual is making a decision for themselves, and government isn't saying, do anything except religion. That's discrimination. And so I think the court needs to deal with that precedent and sort of clear that up. It's like a, a, a little bit of a mess left behind. But I think there are much bigger things coming in the future about public schooling itself. Last year was famously a big year, perhaps the biggest year for educational freedom, for school choice. How are states likely to respond to Carson v. Macon to the extent that the, you know, the median voter in that state is very interested in not having states allow parents to make these choices? Well, I think that we're seeing probably disconnected from Carson v. Macon. I don't know that Carson v. Macon is on the minds of the median voter. I think we've seen, we have seen a lot of uh, growth in school choice. Again, last year was kind of a record year for school choice, but we just saw Arizona um, create the first universal uh, education savings account program. This was just a few weeks ago. And we continue to see people leaving public schools, moving into charter schools, private schools, homeschooling. Uh, I don't think, again, that was Carson v. Macon. I think a lot of that was COVID-19 and many people realizing that public schools just weren't responsive to their needs. And it may not even be that they feel like public schooling itself is a problem, but they said, look, I wanted to have in-person education for my kids. I thought that was really important and I couldn't get it. And I understand some people want something different, but public schooling, you get one size has to fit all. And so a lot of people, regardless of Carson B. Macon, are seizing or you know grabbing onto school choice saying this is something we want and so then you combine that with carson v making what's happening in the courts and we see a lot of the opposition to school choice is starting to say because i think you know for the last few years they've been back on their heels with COVID 19 with the expansion of school choice that goes with it but also lots of court cases now saying that you have to allow full choice religious or choice of religious schools, they're saying, okay, this is the tactic we're going to take is say, okay, but there's schools you just cannot choose. And we're going to say those are schools that have what we call discriminatory policies. And you can certainly understand why they would say this sort of thing. And that means, for instance, in Carson v. Macon, families wanted to choose schools that had traditional Christian values. And that included things in the handbook that said, look, teachers, staff, if you're married, it has to be man and a woman. They believe in traditional moral values. And a lot of people say, but those are discriminatory. 
And so we cannot allow that kind of choice. And so the opposition now seems to be really ramping up to say, well, you can't choose anything that has what many people would call discriminatory policies, but which other people say are policies consistent with their religious beliefs. We've even seen some people say, not only will we try and regulate the private schools that participate in these choice programs, we're also going to push the idea that we have to get rid of these choice programs because the courts have said, if you have them, you can't exclude religious schools. Well, so what we'll say is we'll just get rid of the whole program. Now, I don't think that that is sustainable. The cat is out of the bag at this point on school choice. People, especially after COVID, want to have more control over how their kids are educated. But you're definitely going to see a lot of battles of, well, okay, you can choose religious schools, but not and, and they have to be able to act on their values, but not these values. That, we're going to say, is, is a bridge too far. And actually, um, I think it was the Attorney General of, of Maine said right after this decision came out that they were going to stop schools, religious schools, that want to participate from doing things that, that he said were discriminatory. Well, how do you see that shaking out? Because I can imagine... Um providing, at least in the case of Maine, these are state funds uh, directed by parents to schools that have policies that are discriminatory. Yeah, well, so it's going to be an interesting uh, several years of seeing how this work plays out in court. Uh, Maryland actually has already seen sort of an example of this. There was a school that had those kinds of policies in their handbook. I think it was called Bethel Christian School. And the state said, well, you can't participate in our boost scholarship program uh, because you have these discriminatory policies. Of course, again, the other side of the argument is saying, well, but it's discriminatory not to allow us to participate because this is consistent with our sincerely held religious beliefs. And it's discrimination against religion to say those can't be chosen. What we saw in Maryland, though, was a workaround on this. So it hasn't really dealt with this fundamental issue because ultimately what the judge said was, well, the school should be allowed to continue to participate because they have this in their handbook, but they've never acted on it. So it's actually a violation of their free speech rights as a school not to be able to say something in their handbook without government punishing them. But of course, that really does sort of skirt the issue of, well, what if they acted on it? How does the state sort of make a decision between, well, we think this is a discriminatory policy, but then again, it could be discrimination against religion to not let people choose a school that has a policy that they think is morally right. Um, and I do think we're going to see lots of probably litigation in that direction, except that works a lot more when it is state money. Typically, what we've seen the most growth in is scholarship tax credit programs, where an individual gets a tax credit if they send their kids to a private school. But donors to scholarship groups also get a tax credit. The Supreme Court has ruled that that money is not state money. Very importantly, that means also that the donors, the people spending the money, get to choose what kind of whether to donate and typically what kinds of schools they want that money to go to, that sort of sidesteps this problem of somebody saying, well, you're using state money to ultimately go to a school that somebody might choose that has discriminatory policies. Hopefully, that is a way to work around this. But I also do think that there's a fundamental question uh, and principle that 
people should be able to choose schools that have values commensurate with their own, even if some people see that as discriminatory, because our default should be individual choice and people able to decide amongst themselves what they think is most important. But it is certainly understandable when people say, well, I don't want my money even indirectly going to a school like that, or I should say, even through someone's individual choice going to a school that's discriminatory. But I also think we have an even bigger issue about the public schooling system itself, whether it is discriminatory. And I think that is also going to be a next frontier in uh, at least litigation when it comes to education. Are there some cases that, that you're thinking of right now where that litigation encapsulates this issue? Well, so right now, I can't think of litigation. Let me just sort of lay out the thinking here, um, because it actually has played into the Supreme Court cases, Espinoza v. Montana, which we saw in 2020, which was about basically the same issue as Carson v. Macon. Um, What part of the argument has been that has prevailed in these is that if you're going to have an education system you cannot essentially discriminate against people who want religion in it. Now, this has been restricted to school choice programs. But interestingly, Justice Breyer, in his dissent in both Espinoza and Carson v. Macon, has said, well, look, if the principle is that people should be able to take education money to religious schools as long as it's their free choice, as well as non-religious schools, then isn't really the whole public schooling system a violation of that principle? Because we require religious people to pay for public schools, which have to be secular. They cannot be religion, religious because they're government schools. Doesn't that principle mean, actually, we have to let people choose because religious people need to have a religious choice, not that they are second-class citizens by having to once fund a school system that must be secular and then pay twice for a religious uh, education. And that, he's right. He didn't like this conclusion, but that principle is correct. Should we be compelling people many of whom are religious, to only fund a secular school system. And so while I can't think of cases that are making that argument, he's actually made it twice. And I think on a principle, he's correct. We've also seen, though, some like uh, Philip Hamburger, for instance, who's a, a law professor, he wrote in the Wall Street Journal about a year ago, actually, the reason that the public school system is unconstitutional, it's not about religion, it's about free speech. Essentially, we require parents to pay taxes for an education system in which they don't get to decide what is told to their children, what's taught to them. Government does that, and that's a de facto violation of their free speech rights. We have forced them to pay for government speech in lieu of their own. And so we're kind of seeing in that way kind of two different uh, avenues of attack uh, to point out that the public schooling system is kind of a violation of basic freedom. We require people to pay for something that substitutes government decisions about what morally right, what what is taught for for parental decisions, or what should really be seen as government overreach where government decides what is orthodoxy 
both religious and non-religious, and everybody has to pay for it. So I think that at least the principle on which these cases have been built is leading us to that inexorable decision, which is that the system itself discriminates against many people. We focus on religion because religion gets a special sort of carve-out or treatment in the Constitution. But frankly, the public school system forces sort of majority or powerful minority opinions on all sorts of things. Religion, you know, we can talk about critical race theory. You could talk about how we handle climate change. It puts the government in the position of imposing an orthodoxy on everyone that lots of people will disagree with and everyone has to pay for. And we need to start dealing with that. And it shouldn't just be about religion, but religion does have that special kind of constitutional protection. But this is why Hamburger also says, look, this free speech part is important because it shouldn't just be about religious people. It should be about everybody having freedom to choose. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Please subscribe and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.